Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 20. Most likely next week I will get into the first commandment. But today is more introduction because I want, this is a very uh, difficult subject, believe it or not, uh, about the law. And I, I want to lay some things out for you so you get an understanding. So when somebody asks you, do we keep the law today as believers, you can give them the right answer. Exodus chapter 20, I do want to read, though, the commandments again from verse 1 through 17. It says, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness and to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, again, this morning as we approach your word, Let us have a correct understanding of the law of God as it is given in the word of God and as it moves into the New Testament and what it means for us today. I pray that you would allow us to understand those things for our edification and for our knowledge and for our stability as a believer to know whether we are honoring you or not. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last time we uh, were looking, I've kind of ended with the three functions of the moral law. The civil function was the first function of the moral law, and that was known uh, that the laws of God were given uh, as a guide to the nations uh, for information for their laws, and I'll look at that a little bit more again. And then there's the pedagogical Function that, and that simply means that the law was a teacher, it was an instructor, a tutor, pointing something out that we all needed to know. And then also the law, we notice from there that the law uh, was, a, the law revealed sin. And so we see that, um, of course, as it revealed sin, that we, we saw last time that the, the law could not remove sin, uh, and of course the law pronounced guilt, but it could not provide grace. The law carries the curse uh, of death, but it had no cure. And then, of course, the law was designed by God to shut up everybody under sin. And once uh, we... we understand that as Galatians tells us the scripture has shut every one under sin you may be thinking wow uh, if that's the case then uh, what hope does anyone have to be saved of course we do know 
that the law has good news connected to it, and that good news is that the law is really our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So if you just want to take your Bibles there and turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. It says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, verse 25, it says, And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And of course, uh, in that passage of Scripture, which I mentioned last time, we see that so the law brings us uh, to the very place where it shows us that we're a sinner, shows us that we cannot rescue ourselves. It actually magnifies sin, and then it brings us to the one who can do something about it. And, of course, we know that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said last time that Martin Luther had said that the law is a mirror which reveals to us our uncleanness and causes us to fly to the laver to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And these are the scriptures that we've we've been looking at. And of course, uh, when it drives us to the cross for redemption, then of course it it brings us to Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then we know that uh, that's where we can be saved, that the only person that can make anyone right with God uh, and bring them into the family of God, the only one who could do that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For as for it says at the end of Galatians, right there in that passage, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So God gave us a clear definition, really, of sin in his Ten Commandments, and without this People really can't recognize their pitiful condition and especially their need for a Savior. They can realize that they need help, but they just don't know who to go to to get that help. And we do know from Scripture that help comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the third function of the moral law is that of, of course, uh, before I get to that, just by way of review from last time, we saw that there were uh, three categories, several categories of the law. The revealed law was revealed in the law of the conscience. And of course, the law of the conscience uh, was, remember, 2,500 years, a man lived on the earth without the Ten Commandments, without the written law, and prior to Mount Sinai. And what governed them during that time? Well, the law of conscience did. Uh, Some have called it that. And, of course, the Ten Commandments uh, came later after this time. But this was from the verbal word of God that was given out to people that they were to obey it and, or disobey it because they were aware of their sin because of what was said by God. So this inner monitor that God uh, gave the conscience either accused them uh, or defended them, either one or the other. And so uh, remember that the conscience is not infallible because it is informed by many things, different types of tradition, philosophies, uh, societal factors, uh, religious doctrine, whether it's good religious doctrine, true or false, or whether it's bad. So the conscience, to operate fully and in accord with true holiness that honors God in its thinking is, has to be informed by the Word of God, the written Word of God. And so on the day of judgment, your conscience will side with God, the righteous judge, and the worst sin-hardened evil doer will discover before the throne of God that their conscience either uh, will testify against them 
And as it says in Romans 2.16, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And of course, the secrets of men will be contained within their own conscience, and God will judge using not only creation and conscience, but the word of God and what they have done with Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the second thing that was revealed in Scripture was that of the revealed law of God, all right? And, of course, the law of God, again, is called the moral law, the two tablets of testimony, uh, the law of love, the Decalogue, and, of course, we know that uh, this is the law of God is considered the Ten Commandments, which we're uh, heading towards, right? And remember that the law of God was written on stone, and then the law of God, uh, the Ten Commandments, were placed inside the ark, showing the permanence of the law uh, right under the mercy seat. And then, of course, the moral law given by God is summed up in what we know as uh, the Ten Commandments. And I don't want to, I want to stress that. I want you to know what that is. And, of course, the moral law is a reflection of the very nature of God. Once we get into the commandments, you'll see that. It's the very character of God. It's the declaration of God's will towards his people, which directs and binds actually all men, all men from every age and every place, uh, what their whole duty is uh, to themselves, to the Lord, and, of course, to their neighbor. It is binding on all human beings. And then also that led to the revealed law of God in the law of Moses. Remember, the law of Moses, another way of saying that in the Bible, is it's the book of the law or the book of the covenant or the Mosaic law. And, of course, the law of Moses was written in a book. It was not written by the finger of God on stone. It was written on parchment, and it was written in the book. And that book was placed not in the Ark of the Covenant, but beside the Ark of the Covenant. So we see that this is how it it unfolds. We have the conscience. Now we have the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, and we have the laws of God given to the people of God. And, of course, those laws were broken down in several ways to the civil law, And the civil law just simply meant that uh, Israel had certain directives given to them in their community to organize things. They would have civil management uh, uh, as far as where they're going to camp out and what marches are they going to go on and what wars are they going to be involved with and the inheritance that were promised them from God and the marriages, how are the marriages supposed to work and then if you disobey the, God, disobey the law, what punishments come with that? And then what rulers should rule amongst you? What are their, their, what, what's their character to be? And so all of that was related to national Israel. So that means that the civil law has been nullified for us who are believers. We are not under a theocracy uh, as of... Uh, like Israel was, but we are to obey, according to Romans 13, the governing authorities that God has ordained and then live righteously while we are on this earth. And then, of course, the ceremonial laws were the rites of worship given to Israel so they would be a nation like no other nation around them. And remember that in their uh, worship, they... uh, had the day of Passover, they had the day of atonement, they had the sin offering and the trespass offering and the wave offering, and various other sacrifices were combined in that. But remember that those were all a foreshadowing of what was to come. That They all foreshadowed Christ. And so it was a shadow of the cross extending backward through the centuries before he came. And when Christ came... Of course, the substance finally came, and the shadow faded away. So that means that the ceremonial laws were abrogated or nullified by the coming of the one whom they foreshadowed, namely Jesus Christ. And so that was the passage that I mentioned, that it says that Christ, our Passover, also has been 
sacrificed. And of course, the offering of the body of Jesus was done once for all. So that means that by 70 AD, the whole sacrificial system, the whole priesthood was done. And even till this day, there's no more sacrificial system. If you talk to a Jewish person today, they would say that we're waiting. We're waiting for our temple again so we can institute the sacrifices again. That's what they'll, they'll tell you. They're waiting for that. So they have their Shabbat meal, and their Shabbat meal is a forward-looking to Christ, well, to the Messiah coming, the first coming of Christ they rejected. They still are rejecting that. And nonetheless, but that is what they are looking forward to. But we know as believers that Christ is already our Passover, right? The blood, when, when the Father looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ and he passes over us, right? Passes over us with judgment. There's no judgment to a believer, And so that's a great comfort to us. So therefore, we don't need to make sacrifices. You didn't bring any animals this morning to offer on the altar, right? And uh, and you don't have to do that because we are not under the Old Testament economy anymore because Christ has fulfilled all those types and shadows of the Old Testament. He's fulfilled everything. And that's the amazing thing about our Lord. He's taking care of every single thing that can possibly hinder us from being right with him and then coming into his presence uh, someday uh, as a, uh, a person who has trusted Christ alone for eternal life. So that's a great, great blessing to us. So remember, uh, Moses also recorded 640 separate ordinances in his own handwriting, and all those things are listed and found in the uh, Old Testament that they were to carry out Uh, on a regular basis. But it did say something. It did say that every single day had to do with God. Every single day had something that you had to focus in on what the Lord required of you on that particular day. Sometimes we don't do that as believers. We come Sunday, and then we divorce the rest of the week as somehow that's secular and this is sacred. No, everything is sacred, right? Everything we do every day should remind us of God's goodness and cause thankfulness to rise up in our hearts so we can praise him. That's what the Christian life should be about. And so we should be living in the constant realm of thankfulness and joy every single day. Do you do that? You, uh, so the law of Moses really demanded things that we don't put into practice anymore because Christ had come and, um, and he's fulfilled things. So what happened in the the Word of God is that the question comes up, remember when the apostles were preaching in the book of Acts, and here's the question, should the Gentiles keep the moral law, right? Should they keep the the Mosaic law? That was really the question, right? And turn to chapter 15 of Acts, and I want you to see what it says there. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I do want to just point out some passages. Acts chapter 15, and you'll notice here that the law of Moses is really not binding on the Gentiles because it becomes clear in Acts chapter 15. That was the question. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. It says, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless You are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. Verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. All right? And that's what they did. So we see them go up to Jerusalem. And then notice in verse number 6, it says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them. Remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant, right? And to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So, so they, there was a confusion about this thing there. And then, of course, uh, the apostles say that, listen, uh, God brought the same gospel to the Gentiles. They believed it. They received the Spirit of God. And then in, notice in verse number 10 of chapter 15. Now, therefore, why do you put 
God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. All right, speaking about the Mosaic law, then verse number 11, it says, but we believe that we are saved through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, in the same way as they are also are, meaning that the Jews and the Gentiles were getting saved the same exact way. And then notice in verse uh, number 29, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself from, from uh, keep free from such things, you shall do well, farewell. So he's saying, listen, these are the only things required of you as a Gentile living in that economy right there is that that's it. So that means all the ceremonial civil part of the Mosaic law they didn't have to keep. All right, that's why some of the apostles were were found uh, guilty of not uh, preaching, well, preaching against the law, and so that's why most of them were actually were killed for 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 reasons like that. So that brings me to the third function of the law, and again, that is that of being a didactic or that it is still teaching. So we have the civil, we have the ceremony, ceremonial, uh, or the, pedi- uh, the learning part of it where the law teaches, and then we have the ongoing teaching of the law. In other words, um, the moral law is a guide for the Christian life. It functions as a teacher for us. Now, does the fact that a Christian is justified by faith alone without the deeds of the law mean that the law of God is nullified? I say this, absolutely not. It is not nullified. And why is that? Well, now I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, verse number 31. Romans 3 and verse number 31, we're right there in the Scripture. It tells us that... It says, do, uh, verse 31 of Romans chapter 3, it says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So now we're seeing here, wait a minute, that the, this, the moral law of God is not abrogated. It's not nullified. We're going to look at how that plays out later on. But that becomes an important point. Now, however, it, it, it does mean that our relationship to the law has changed. To show you what I mean, I want you to, to direct your attention to really two passages of Scripture that will shed much needed light on a Christian's relationship to the law of God. Now, remember, when I say the law of God, I am, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments and after that they come to, a Christian comes to believe in Christ Jesus, confess and follow Christ as their Lord and Savior, now how are they to live their life? Under what standard are we to live our life? So there's still another category of the law of God that we must examine and understand, and it becomes the most important one of all that I mentioned already, and it's this category. It's the law of Christ. The law of Christ. Now, before we look at the passage of Scripture, there's a couple of respectable uh, theologians I would like to quote before we look at the first passage and then the last passage later. uh, And it's John Feinberg and then Doug Moo. John Feinberg says this, and I agree with him, we are not bound to the civil ceremonial and moral law, but the law of Christ binds us. And then Doug Moo says, also, the Mosaic Code is no longer in force. The law of Christ has superseded it. We must fulfill the law of Christ. So it is the obligation that us as believers ought to know what the law of Christ is and what does it actually mean entail. 
Now, the law of God and the law of Christ is clearly suggested in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 21. Now, that's the passage I want you to turn to, but keep your kind of hand ready to go back to Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 21, and I want you to notice what it says here. Now, now Paul is speaking as a free man. In other words, he's, he's speaking as someone who's not bound by all the rules and regulations of the ceremonial and the civil law under the Mosaic covenant, right? But he is under a law that he's following and obeying. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 9.21. It says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. So, in other words, Paul was saying, as a human being created in the image of God, he was still under the obligation to obey the moral law of God by his creator, but in his new position as a saved person in Christ Jesus, he now belongs to Christ. Christ is now his new master, Christ is the mediator and the go-between of his redemption, that Christ has purchased him from the slave market of sin, and he is now Christ's possession. Therefore, what he means is that now I am under the law of Christ, the principle of living as a believer under Christ. Now, so that passage of Scripture becomes very important for us because it highlights very clearly that all the things that we talked about already comes, again, in, uh, into the right perspective in Christ Jesus. Now, as creatures, let me, let me just kind of think through this a little bit. As creatures, we are under the bonds to serve the law of God. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. I want to let you know that. The arch enemy of God's people is not the Mosaic law or any laws. As it says in Romans chapter 7, and that's why I'd like you to turn back there. Again, Romans 7 and verse number 12 tells us this. It says, so... Then, Romans 7, verse 12, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Now, I I say that for this reason, and the scripture tells us that for this reason. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. And that we are enrolled in the service of sin, and actually slaves of sin. That's what you'll learn when you become a believer. But just think about that for a minute. Sin's basic objective is to drive the lawkeeper away from the lawgiver through death. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 23, what does it say? Very clearly, for the wages of sin is death. So see, what happens is that Sin actually encourages its victims to do several things. Number one, it actually encourages its victim to disobey the law, right? That's what it encourages it it to do, us to do, actually, as victims of sin. Knowing the law induces a person to break it rather than to keep it. You walk past the lawn and it says, Don't step on the grass. What do you think? I think I'll step on the grass, right? It's when something, when the parent tells a child not to do something, it's like saying, it's, and they, what, they're, what are they tempted to do? To do exactly the opposite of the command, right? So the, the command itself, because of sin, brings a person to actually break the commandment instead of keep the commandment. Now, this was the whole ordeal when Paul was trying to explain that in Romans chapter 7. Now, I want you to look there with me, and I want you to notice, 
I guess it's verse number 7, Romans 7, verse 7. I think that's what I want. It says, what shall we say then, verse 7? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's the 10th commandment. Verse number 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from life, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And then in verse number 9, it says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Verse 10, and this commandment, which was was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Verse 11, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and just, or and, and good. Verse 13, therefore, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that I might be shown to be sin by affecting my death to that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, as I tried to keep the law, the sin in me caused me to say, I don't want to keep the law. And as I did that over and over again, if you go through the Ten Commandments, you break all ten of them in some way, right? And why? Because of your sin, because your your sin doesn't want to keep them. And so therefore, as you break them, you realize that it doesn't result in life. It results in actually death. It results in separation from God. But then what does the law also do? It magnifies your sin. It brings you and I to the point where we say, I am utterly sinful. But that's exactly what the law was supposed to do. Because if it didn't do it, we would never really know we sinned against God. All right, so... Sin encourages its victims to do that first thing, to disobey the law. But that's not it. Sin also encourages the victims of is, is to actually view the law as an end in itself. See, in other words, sin encourages a person to be law-centered instead or rather than God-centered. See, keeping the law rather than knowing God becomes the highest goal. And so you find people who become legalists, and it's all about the rules and the regulations. Have you done things right? Have you, have you not done things right? And it's all about keeping the law. It's not about getting to know God more. It's not about that. And so, see, sin encourages the victims to view the law as an end in itself. Keeping the law rather than knowing God becomes the highest goal. And then also, sin encourages to receive the acclaim of people rather than the acclaim of God. So it becomes the the, the desired goal is to have accolades from people, right, instead of from God. So in other words, that uh, passage of Scripture like this where it says they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. All right, That's what happens when somebody tries to keep the law and avert from what the original intention of the law was. So people become law keepers. All right? And then, of course, the law, or excuse me, the sin also encourages one to receive not only a claim from people, but to finally forget the grace of God. So sin seeks to divert its victims' attention from the promise of salvation to that of 
law-keeping. So law-keeping becomes the substitute for the way of salvation. When you ask people today, are they a good person, what do they say? I try to keep the Ten Commandments. That's exactly what they're doing. They're doing exactly what sin is dictating them to do because they're a victim of sin. And so what they say, as long as I do these things, I'm going to be right with God. I'm, I'm trying to be a good person, right? The thing is, is that you could never be that good. You have to be perfect before God, and you cannot make yourself perfect. So in other words, see, the law becomes the way of salvation. It becomes a substitute for salvation in which law keepers expects wages to which that person would be entitled or they boast about how well they keep the law. So this is what takes place when a person as a creature is under the law of God. These are the things that take place. Now, the law could not deliver us from the slave market of sin and this body of death. But there was somebody who can deliver us. And if you look right there in Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 24. In verse 25, Matthew 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from, this, from the body of this death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. That's as a creature. But what about as a redeemed sinner? We are bond slaves now of a new master, Christ. We are not slaves of sin anymore. And so this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. And what happens as slaves of Christ? This is what Paul says. Doing the will of God from the heart. We couldn't do that before. As believers now, we can do that. We can obey the will of God from our heart. That's what the intention of living under the law of Christ is. I want to obey. I want to love the Lord. So is the moral law Nullified? Absolutely not. It is included in the law of Christ. So that means that as I break that down and just give you some passage of scriptures, that Christ is the end of the law. Romans chapter 10, if you're right there, still in Romans, notice what it says in Romans 10.4. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, but notice to who? Who is the, the end of the law for? To everyone who believes, everyone else is still under the law. But when you come to Christ, in other words, end there means that was the purpose of what Christ came to do. Once, once the law reached the goal, it's terminated. And who was able to terminate it? It was the Lord himself. So everyone who comes to Christ, the Condemnations of the law have ended. The regulations of the law have ended. So that means that Christ is the goal of the law. In Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to 14, it says that their minds were hardened. He was talking about those who would not come to Christ. For, especially the Jews, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. So the reason why people do not believe is because they're blinded. They have a veil before them, especially those who are uh, Jews. If they don't want to believe in Christ who is the Messiah, then they're in their unbelief. It says also there in verse 15, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, and that would be the 
Mosaic Law, uh, the Decalogue, a veil lies over their heart. But verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So it's lifted from us when we come to Christ. So Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is also the exemplar of the law. Christ is the object of the ceremonial dimensions of the law. Why is that? Because he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It says that in Hebrews. It tells us in the Word of God that the the Bible is clear to us that um, Christ's aim, uh, Christ is the aim of the law's civil dimension even also, and that means that Christ created in himself a people of God, Jews and Gentiles, in which he exercised his sovereign kingship over. So when Christ came, the shadows all disappeared, and they were all fulfilled in Christ. So he is the end of it. So Christ created in himself a people for himself, and we're part of that people. We're part of the people of God because we have come to Christ. The veil has been lifted. The, uh, the end of the law has come, that Christ fulfilled all the law. And so we realize from that that a second thing would be that Christ is the Lord of the law. And as Lord of the law, Christ conquers sin. Right there, if you're still in Romans, it says in Romans 8, verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering and as an offering for sin. He condemned condemned sin in the flesh, so he conquers sin by condemning it. And then he snatches the law from sin's grip in eight, verse number 4 of chapter 8 of Romans, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He snatches the law from sin's grip by meeting the requirements of the law, which is the justice, satisfying all the justice of the Father on the cross. And he satisfies it all so we can be snatched from sin's grip. And then also Christ disarms the hostile powers by taking away the weapons against us. It tells us this in Colossians chapter 2. In verse number 14, it says this, that having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All right, then he redeems us from the curse of the law, Galatians chapter 3. Then Christ nails the certificate of our indebtedness to the cross, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. So Christ secures our forgiveness in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 13. It says there, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, all our law-breaking, all our going past where we ought to go, all all our stepping on the grass when the sign says don't step on the grass. The Lord takes it all, nails it all to the cross. All your unrighteousness, all your unholiness, all your ungodliness, and he secures your forgiveness completely and totally. And then Christ unites us with himself in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and frees us from the powers that hold us and bring us under his lordship. And he becomes our master. So that means also a third thing, that in Christ, the law is newly administered and its essence explained. Now, that means that Christ, not the law, is the believer's master. So not only is not sin the believer's master, but also the law 
is not the believer's master. Christ is the believer's master. So that means that now we live as believers under the law of Christ. So the law of God is now named the law of Christ as it relates to Christians. The law of Christ is God's moral law at the hands of a mediator. And what does that mean? It means that the moral law of God, that Christ, that it is the moral law of God that Christ himself was made under. Where does it say that? Galatians 4.4, it says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then, of course, it is the moral law of God that Christ came to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 17, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Also, it is the moral law of God that was in the heart of Christ. For it says in Psalm 40, verse number 8, it says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. And that law there is the word Torah, the law of God. So Jesus knew the full end and result of God's law. And you may say, well, what is that? What is the full end and result of God's law? When Jesus was asked that question by a Jewish scribe, Jesus answered him from the Old Testament Torah, from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this is what he said, and this is where I want you to turn your Bibles. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34, the Lord gives an answer to this scribe in a very important way that brings it all together, brings all what I've said together, and notice what it says. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered, The foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Verse number 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, write teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look at verse number 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So what what does Jesus do? You know what he does? He takes the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he breaks them in two places. They're not really broken. He actually synthesizes them. He says the first four commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second The last six commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why these two commandments are now synthesized, synthesizes or brings in all, not only the Ten Commandments, but also brings in the ceremonial part of the law, 
the Mosaic part of the law and all the other parts of the law are all come into these statements. Because look what it says in Look what it says in Galatians 2 on screen. It says, bear one another's burdens, right? Bear one another's burdens and thereby what? Fulfill the law of Christ. So the mosaic, the moral, the mosaic law all come together in Jesus Christ with its civil and ceremonial aspects. So that means that under the law of Christ, we are no longer sold under sin and its condemnation. Under the law of Christ, we are born again into the family of God with all its rights and privileges. Under the law of Christ, we have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit sealed unto the day of redemption. Under the law of Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer is your master The law of Christ is not a new set of laws that has taken place of the old set, but the law of God, not written on hearts of stone, but written now on hearts of flesh. As Ezekiel tells us, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That means a heart that's pliable and moldable and a heart that wants to love God, wants to beat for God. That, that's what he gives us when we become a believer. And then he says, and I will, pit, I will put my spirit within them and cause you to walk in my statutes, and I will, and you will... Be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what he does to us. Our hearts, hearts which, are, which desire to be obedient, not to cold law, but to Christ, the person, in whom we want to affectionately love. So when we do so, we fulfill the law of God, the two great commandments just mentioned that those who are bound to Christ enter into a life of liberty and love as they bind themselves to his law. Christ is the reality that all the Mosaic regulations foreshadowed, that Christ expounds his law by calling believers to love God and to love neighbor. And the Holy Spirit is the one who implants that love in our heart. He puts it there when we become believers. So again, the law of Christ is not a different law from the law of Moses. Each law comes from God, and each is given for the same purpose, to enjoin love of God and love of neighbor. Of course, the understanding of the law and the Law-keeping is radically affected by the coming of Christ. Accordingly, his law is a further expression of the law of Moses. It is not the same expression. It is more than a mere repetition of ancient laws. So by virtue of who Jesus is and what he came to do, the law is now newly administered and more deeply expounded than ever before. So in summary, the law of Moses is related to the law of Christ. Now, this illustration is small on the screen, but hopefully you can see it. Uh, The relationship between the law of Moses and the law of Christ, this relationship is neither where you see the law of Moses there, that it ends, it's cut off, and then the law of Christ begins. It's not that. Nor is it the law of Moses comes to an end, and the law of Christ is elevated and then continues. It's not that. But it's the last one, where the law of Moses and everything that's connected to it is elevated, and it moves. it all moves into the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Here's the law of Christ, love of God and love of neighbor. 
So see, when somebody asks you, when somebody asks you, as a Christian, do you keep the law of Moses? You say to them, as a Christian, I keep the law of Christ. And the law of Christ has two main ingredients to it, to love God and to love my neighbor as myself. So in other words, the essence of the law, namely to love and to honor Yahweh or the Lord and one's neighbor from the heart becomes the important thing. Look what it says there in, on the screen in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a weight upon us. They're something the Spirit of God gives us liberty to do. And then another passage, I can mention others, but look at Galatians 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James tells us, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do so, you are doing well. So, if that is the end result, and it's always been the end result of God's commands, to love God and to love his people, how are we doing? How far are you growing in biblical love? Love is the badge and the character of Christianity. A Christian may advance in many areas of the Christian life, but without growth in the most important Christian distinctive, that being love, Corinthians 13 says it profits nothing. We can have a lot of skill, a lot of know-how, a lot of time in the, as a Christian, and if we haven't learned to love, we haven't learned. Maybe we're not even a believer. This is, becomes a very critical point for all of us, that this is how you know you're a believer. When love begins to diminish and grow cold, our sin, when it increases itself, it doesn't manifest in looking like Jesus. It manifests in the opposite way of not looking like Jesus. This, this is how diminishing love looks. We lose patience easily. Like Corinthians says, instead love suffers long. Unkindness becomes common. Yet the Bible says love is kind. Sinful envy, envy and bitterness are displayed Yet the scriptures tell us, yet love does not envy. We defend ourselves when confronted about our lack of love. When the scriptures tells us, love does not parade itself or is puffed up. We become less courteous and more rude with people. Yet love does not behave rudely, scripture tells us. We start tr trumping our rights or over others, and yet love does not seek its own. We become e easily angered, and yet biblical love is not provoked. Fault-finding becomes frequent. Yet the Bible says, yet love keeps no black book of wrongs and thinks no evil of the person. When our love is not present and waning, Projects become more important than people. We become unwilling to confront when necessary. We are not concerned with the lost all around us. See, that's where the law leads. It leads us to the place that we are loving God, and as we're learning to love God, and he, he's teaching us and demonstrating his love toward us in the word of God, we turn around and we show that same kind of love that God's showing us and giving us to other people. 
if we are not doing that, there is a great question mark on where you're at spiritually. Those growing in Jesus' kind of love will not only say loving words, but also do loving deeds, just as he did. So is the direction, I'm not saying perfection of your life, is the direction of your life to honor the Honor and love God and love and honor your neighbor? Christians have obtained new life in Christ. So under the law, you and me would not have the slightest chance of performing God's commands with complete success. Your sinful nature and mind would not allow it. But because... Believers have obtained new life in Christ and have the indwelling Holy Spirit and have the Word of God, they become willing to want to please and obey the one who saved them. And as Christians, we have the privilege, the privilege and the power given to us by God to fulfill the law of Christ in the power of the indwelling spirit, the Christian is given the enablement to obey God's revealed will from their heart. And this involves walking in the spirit in which there must be day-to-day yieldness and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So when you walk in the spirit, you will what? You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, you'll be living according to the law of Christ. And that's the goal of the Christian life, and that's where the Spirit of God is bringing us. But you have to examine yourself how you're doing. Why don't you examine it right in your family? How how's, how you doing as husband and wife? How you doing as parents and children and children and parents? How you doing on your job with your employees or your if you're an employer or you're an employee, how are you doing with your boss? How are you doing with people? That's the test right there. How have I grown in Christ is the test when you walk out the door and you deal with people. How much we fall short of what God wants for us. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law of God. But then this is what he said, and I'll end with this. For you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not murder, and you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in say. In this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what Scripture says. And all of us must be examined by that standard. So you know what Christ does? He takes the Mosaic law. He takes the ceremonial law, the civil law, and he elevates it to up here. But up here, you have the Holy Spirit of God to actually do it. Down there, you couldn't because of your sin. So that's where we're at. Now we're going to get into the Ten Commandments. Next time, let's pray. Lord, thank you again that the Word of God is so incredible, Lord. But Lord, I must say that when I think of what the Word of God tells us about loving you and loving others, we must all be honest that we have far way to go. But Lord, we want every day for the Spirit of God to use us in a way where we are living under the law of Christ and that we realize it. We are not ignorant of that. The very thoughts we have, the very words we speak, the very body language that we present to people. Lord, if it is not representing you, please convict us of that. 
and cause us and empower us to change it by your spirit and your word that we may depend on you every day so that these two great commandments that can be understood by us may be fulfilled in us every single day. I pray, Lord, you would give us and grow us and mature us to the place where that is the case. And in doing so, we know that we will honor you and represent you well and that you'll give us many opportunities to serve you when we genuinely learn how to love you and others. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you.